This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast, where we talk with people who in some way, shape, or form have been influenced by the outdoors. I'm Andy, the producer of this podcast, and my lovely wife, Sarah, will be your host. Together, we make up Hiking Through Life. This podcast is all about bringing all kinds of people who are inspired by the outdoors and sharing their stories. We hope that by sharing people's stories, it inspires others to get out and live a more meaningful life. Tune in every week for new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Hiking Through Life podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Also, if you have a story to share or know of anyone who might be interested in being a guest on this podcast, head on over to hikingthroughlife.net slash podcast and get in touch with us. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Today we're joined by Kai Fellow, who is a poet from New Mexico, who recently had her first book, Refugia, come out this past fall. And a lot of the writing or poetry she's written for that book is tied to the outdoors and issues pertaining the Earth's happenings, including global warming, the seasons, the food we plant, and human relationships all around the Earth, really. And um, for me, a person who doesn't read much poetry, I was still able to connect with some of her poetry and the way she writes about the outdoors. So... Um, if poetry is a little scary for people out there, I think hers is a really good way to ease into it because I did find some really awesome connections in what she was writing. So thank you for joining us today, Kais. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So um, do you want to start just by reading a piece of your work? Sure. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I So my book is called Refugia, and maybe I'll just introduce it a tiny bit, because that is not a word many people know, although it's vaguely familiar, because of course there's refuge and refugee in it. Um, I didn't know this word until pretty late in writing the book, and I happened upon it in a a happy accident, as much uh, of my happy accidents are with poetry. When you're writing, you discover things and discover words. And a refugia is a term used in ecology and in science to refer to places where plant and animal species can survive periods of climatic change. And in the past, it's used to look at, say, ice ages and where species found kind of temperate refugium place it, refugium is the singular, to survive the ice. And now science is looking at how refugia provide refuge during warming temperatures. And so this idea and concept really captured my imagination and connected deeply with much of the poems that I had been writing. And I ended up writing a whole sequence of poems with that title that became the title of the book. And it sort of brought everything together. So with all that said, I'm going to start with a poem called Refugia 5. It's the fifth in the sequence. 2.6 million years of alluvia collect into a new land. 
mountain avens, and musk ox cross-pollinate, reproduce, and persist until major disturbing events alter their ecological trajectory. After fires one, two, and three, the mountains cease to breathe. I love making love in aspen groves every autumn, but of course, we are barely a consequence. Our toes digging into leaf drifts, the water just out of reach. The forest succeeds itself in waves we watch unfold. Pages of Quercus, then quaking aspen, rewrite the contoured book, and the mountain turns to something other and unknown, growing beyond us. All right. Thank you. So, yeah, there's so many um, natural words that you can already grab from that poetry in itself. And did you even have a title at first when you were going about this? It really is a lot like getting lost in the wilderness. You know, you're just <laughs> in this forest and you're in this kind of magical realm filled with your poems and you don't really know what any of it means or how any of it goes together. And, you know, you can start with a title in mind. And sure, some people do. And maybe that title lasts till the end. But my experience with an individual poem or a collection of poems is the less I know about it at the beginning, the better. Because whatever ideas I have are going to not be the ones that serve in the end. And so truly, no, I didn't have this title. When it came to me, though, I knew for sure that it was the right one. And that was good because all the other ones I wasn't sure about, but I was using them anyways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I also had to look up the definition of refugia. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So has, has poetry always been an interest of yours? And actually, before we get into that, let's just like talk about your, your background. It sounds like mm -hmm. you... You were born in Virginia, and but then you eventually moved to New Mexico at like age 10. Is that correct? Yeah, I was about 12 when my family moved out. But I spent a lot of time here as a child also. My family had ties in New Mexico, and we'd come out every summer and spend a month in the mountains just up the road from Santa Fe, where I live now. And so when my parents were ready to make a big life change, we lived outside of D.C. and it was, you know, a major rat race kind of life that they were living. They knew they wanted to come to New Mexico. And they at first they're like, Santa Fe, no, too big. And then they said, Taos, no, too big. And they ended up way out in the boonies. And that was where I found myself as a 12. I think I turned 13 that summer that we moved out. And there was a big period of adjustment for sure. It's like coming to Mars from Virginia, you know, the landscape couldn't be more different. And yet I am so glad they made that leap in their life. And I'm so glad to have grown up here for, or come of age here, as I like to say, and then to live here and be raising my own family now. Yeah. And I mean, that is just a huge jump. So was when you got there, when did you, I, I think I read somewhere, like you started connecting with to literature to kind of like mm. ease yourself yeah. into the woods and like this landscape yeah. that you were surrounded by. So I have always loved books. That would be, you know, I was 
one of those avid reader kids. And I don't know that I would have said I wanted to grow up to be a writer, but I definitely would like, I'm going to grow up and read books, (laughs) which I do. Um, And so definitely it was through connecting with New Mexico's incredible literary tradition that I started to understand the place through its stories. Like if you don't know where it is you've arrived, understand the story of that place through the people, the history, the culture that's there. Um, And that was the beginning of it. And boy, it worked. I just immersed myself in it and I could begin to see the landscape's beauty through that lens. And um, it really shaped me, both the stories and then the land. And when I was a teenager, I also apprenticed with an herbalist. And so I began to understand the land in a whole new way, which was through the plants. And that was really, really when I dug my you know, hands in and became deeply acquainted. I actually befriended it literally by making friends with all these plants. I made friends with the landscape. Yeah, I mean, just starting off from, yeah, your young years, that's really, really (laughs) neat. And when you say that you were like, just diving in with like the stories and everything, do Mm. your um, parks and stuff have lots of like history signs when you're just walking Mm. through them? You know, in some places, like here I live in Santa Fe, and there's a lot of signage around certain things like our river the history of the Santa Fe River is known and being told, which is so important because it's actually been so much erased. Like if you didn't have these signs in front of you telling you what you were seeing and what it had been and what it, you know, was supposed to be, you really wouldn't know. Um, And the same, you know, New Mexico, Santa Fe was founded in 1610. And we have this history of the Camino Real going to Mexico. So there is science about that. But really, what I'm thinking of is much different. It's the stories that aren't really told publicly as much, but by writers like Leslie Marmon Silko or Rudolfo Anaya um, and a host of other ones, um, poets and fiction writers alike, you know, novels, stories of people, of people as they related to the land. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that that explains that makes much more sense. I mean, yeah, because I guess when I hear you say that, like my mind was going towards like reading the the signs along parks Mm. and stuff, because I know like Mm. I I do learn a lot when I go read signs like our local parks and stuff. But yeah, I suppose for being a poet, you are reading much at a deeper (laughs) deeper connection. (laughs) Maybe. But I think that's a great point like where is the kind of public storytelling happening like how are people going to know things if it's not being told and you're lucky to live in a place that really um, makes sure the storytelling is happening yeah and I mean there's way more that they could do but I do notice Mm. that there is things being shared in certain places yeah um so so you we're starting to do that like in your your teens you started diving into like the plants and the earth mm-hmm. and did you decide at that point that you kind of wanted to go get your your MFA in poetry and become a clinical herbalist or ha- which one happened first yeah good question um so poetry I'll just put say now was way off my radar I was definitely wanted to be a writer but I was kind of like you like I didn't really get poetry. I didn't read much of it. 
it was a very foreign land, much like New Mexico when I came from Virginia. Um, and it is for many people, but that doesn't mean it's an inhospitable land. I'll just remind all your listeners that poetry is a fertile, good place to visit. So, but I didn't get there till actually relatively recently. So I was in New Mexico. I was 15. I did an apprenticeship with an herbalist in lieu of going to high school. I was kind of a homeschooler, unschooler type. And that was what I did and kind of found to really engage me. And it was incredible. She was this awesome kind of super earthy rootsy woman like an older hippie who like made all her own velvet dresses and who's sort of like a medieval kind of herb woman and we'd go out and we'd harvest plants and we'd come back and mix up all these potions and brews and it was just such an incredible time and she inspired me to go study with the herbalist Michael Moore who at that time was running the Southwest School of Botanical Medicine and I went down there. He was in Arizona and attended school with him, which was just awesome. And his books are available to people living in the West. Like he has several that are really wonderful uh, about like medicinal plants of the Mountain West is or Pacific Northwest, different guides. And he's since passed away, but his legacy lives on in his students and books. So I studied with him. And he actually really inspired me to become a nurse because he made me want to go a little deeper into medicine and to work with truly sicker people and be involved in healthcare, and which I did. And I graduated from nursing school really young. I was 21. So I kind of was bridging all of it together, like nursing for work, but herbalism for passion and for my love of the plants and the land. But then I was still writing and I I went to school after nursing school and I studied Southwest studies and literature. Um, and so I went deeper into that passion of mine and was working as a nurse and was gathering herbs and kind of everything was sort of coexisting. And I had children. I have two daughters. And during their childhood, I really made a big shift away from writing fiction and like nonfiction, which is what I had been doing up to that point. I just didn't have the time. I couldn't sustain the attention. And I started to look at poetry and I began to, well, here, let me put it this way. The things that made me not the best writer were things, the best fiction writer were things like being really dreamy and having no plot in my stories and not coming to, you know, not getting to the point or just being filled with questions (laughs) that I couldn't answer or, you know, just being filled with images and feelings. And these are not great fiction tools, but they're great in poetry. (laughs) And I just slowly was drawn in that direction. And when my kids were small, I took some time off from working as a nurse. And before I went back to work, I thought, you know, this is my one chance to do an MFA. Like I can start working again and it's never going to happen. But right now I can do it. I can work like a tiny little bit. I had a small job that would pay for my program. And I just thought I'm going to go for it. I'm going to devote a few years just to writing and to poetry and delve into this as deeply as I can. 
um, not just so I could write it, but so I could be a, a patron of it, so I could appreciate it and read it and try to have a sense of what it was, <laughs> you know, yeah. that can be so baffling to, you know, the, so, the so-called uninitiated. But that's a myth. It's truly a myth. Anyone can, <laughs> anyone can read poetry and get it. Anyone can. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> After I got an oh. MFA, I could come to that conclusion, but it took an MFA to, to say that. <laughs> wow. So you had quite the journey to get there. I mean, even just hearing right away that you did like the the unschooling thing kind of and <laughs> was working with this kind of hippie herbalist woman. I mean, that's just a really cool story in itself you could just talk about that for the whole rest of oh the, my our gosh time. you have such an interesting rich history already and we're not even done wow <laughs> that is so cool so wow and yeah so then you're basically trying to go get your MFA while while you had two young daughters yeah, that I started it when they were both essentially school age, like one was in preschool and one was in kindergarten or something. So I had them out of the house and I could start. I had this incredible gift, which was time and solitude, which I felt like after my, you know, years of full time mothering, I really deserved. And I so I called it my sabbatical, like I'm going to give myself a sabbatical before I go to work and get back to the grind of life. I'm going to do this thing. And it was a real gift to myself and to my family too. Yeah, of course. So when you were being a nurse, were you doing it all based off your herbalist like education or Mm. how did that look? Okay. Definitely not like being an herbalist at all. And I didn't really want it to like, I, felt well let me go back my mother is a nurse practitioner but she's also a homeopath and she's always made her her profession is homeopath so I was raised in definitely in alternative medicine but I wanted something more like I really wanted to be um conventional (laughs) no just kidding (laughs) I wanted to work with people within the healthcare system I wanted to work with really sick people and so I actually was working in oncology. I went to nursing school. I became a registered nurse and I work I worked at my local hospital as an oncology nurse and in infectious disease. And I have to say that these are settings where you don't really think, gosh, if I could just give this person some mint tea, like they would be so much better. Like it's a whole different realm. And of course, complementary medicine has its place within that system, but um I just see it more as a well for me, the herbal medicine is actually not so much about, I'm not a practicing herbalist in that people come to me and ask me for advice. I am a practicing herbalist in that I am engaged with the plants. I'm a, I'm what you would call a bioregional herbalist. Like I don't go to the herb store and buy stuff. I go out and gather it from the mountains here. And I use the plants that I I'm connected to. And we travel, we go to Arizona, we go to Texas, Colorado to get plants too. But um, it's pretty simple. And it's really about a relationship with the with the land and with those plants. And now would you say it's more so just for your own yourself and your family's well being? I would definitely say so. 
Yeah. And in some ways, it's more, it's like a friendship with those plants. If you read my book, I mean, it's just, you'll see I name these plants constantly because they're, they're beings, they're plants, they're items, they're something that I have a relationship with. And they're being named is me telling a story, not just about that plant, but about myself, because they have shaped my life in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I did definitely like see some of that in, in your in your writing. As like I said, as much as I did decipher it, I know you said everyone can understand poetry. (laughs) I'll get there. (laughs) The thing with poetry is that you don't need to understand anything like you could see it as an experience and like you're just going in not to like unlock some secret that's being kept from you by the poet and if only you were really really smart you could solve it poetry is an experience and it's one that you get to have on your own terms like that word you identify with or that image that reminds you of your own walk through a meadow one day as the rain rain began to fall like that's that's how an individual relates to it. And that's the whole point of poetry is to unlock something inside of the reader as much as the author's intention. And I also say, if you think of a poem as like a hike, like you're just taking a hike, you don't ask, what does this all mean? You know, you just see it and you take it in and poetry can be that way too. And it rewards rereading. So the more you hike a familiar trail, the more you start to understand it in ways that you couldn't have the first time around. Same with poetry. Yeah, I really, yeah, I do think that's a really beautiful way to put it. You're you're giving me a whole new light to this. <laughs> <laughs> so you got your MFA. And then at that time, was that kind of when you really started writing as your profession? Yeah, well, I consider myself a professional writer, but it's not my profession. I work as a nurse, and I'm so glad that I have that distinction because nursing is such a good profession for a writer. Like, I can work a few days a week, and I have a lot of time for writing. But if I was trying to have my poetry actually make a living, it wouldn't of course, succeed at that because poetry doesn't make any money in general. And I don't really want to work in academics because I'm a nurse. So um, I have a good balance between my work, professional work and my creative work. But I do take writing very seriously and I spend a lot of hours on it each week. So when you were going about writing Refugia, was that kind of the plan the, the long-term goal you had to write this book? Or were those just kind of a collection of poems you have been writing through the years? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to get through an MFA program without having some idea of completing a book. I mean, you could, you make a thesis and it's a manuscript, whether it's ready to be published as a book or not remains to be seen. But, you know, I came out of my program with a body of work that I thought, oh, here it is. It's my manuscript. I'm going to publish a book. But of course, I'm also a very practical person. And I know that getting a book of poetry published is about as unlikely as, I don't know, somebody once said getting drafted into the NFL. It's not that hard. 
at all. But um, it's, you know, you don't have a lot of hope that it's ever going to really come true because the culture of poetry publication right now, especially for first books, is around contests. And you send your book into all these contests done by various presses along with 3,000 other really brilliant writers. And, you know, no matter how wonderful your book is, you don't really know if it'll ever be able to kind of rise up through all of those other voices. And so my book did win a contest from, it was called the Test Site Poetry Series from the University of Nevada Press and Interim Magazine, which is out of the University of Nevada, uh, Las Vegas. And they had a very specific call, which I'll try to summarize for you, but it was basically like they were looking for books that engage the perilous conditions of the 21st century as it relates to both the earth and human communities and holds each with compassionate like lens, if that makes sense. And when I read that, I was like, well, first of all, it's very rare for a poetry contest to have some kind of a intention, let alone one that could perfectly describe my book to a T, which I think that one did. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, this could work out. And it did. It was selected and published by them. I'm very grateful. Yeah. I mean, that's like everything your your book is. So while you were gathering these poems, I mean, when you wrote them, were they just, well, did each Mm. poem come to you as you were out in the wilderness Mm -hmm. or how did they even come to you that's a great question yeah like has this topic always been a an area of interest to you um so when you say this topic I mean you're definitely looking at the ecological concerns the other themes in this book that are really strong are about family and family ties. And there's a sense of looking to the past and like kind of looking at ancestral family tree kind of things. And then at some point, the poems also begin to address the future. Like I have one called Dear Future Child that is looking at, you know, it's not necessarily my future child, my grand, my descendant or grandchild, it's our collective future. And so I just had a need to address them. because another of the themes in the book are the loss of conifers in the West due to climate change and, you know, really looking at a landscape changing before our eyes and losing something that defines not just, you know, the Rocky Mountains or the West, which is my particular viewpoint of climate change. This is my vantage. This is what I see. And this is what's breaking my heart. Like on the, I mean, we have things that break all of our hearts, like coral reefs and polar bears. But I think if we look up close at our individual homes and landscapes, we all have something present for us, something that is being lost um, or changed. And that is what we're reckoning with right now, don't you think, um, as a collective? And so this book is to some degree doing that with the loss of the conifers, or the transformation. I don't even know what to call what's happening in the in the West. But, um, and those themes, I mean, I have love poems. I write about my kids. I write about picking fruit and making jam. I write about all yeah, kinds the, of things. But The one about your kid. I think about, there was one you wrote about your daughter and her balloon deflating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a sad day. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So 
so many different things come into poetry, but I, I think one thing I've noticed is that if I'm writing about my grandmothers, you're going to also find many connections with the natural world will be there. And when I'm writing, say, a quote unquote nature poem, there's also a sense of of human family connection. You know, those all everything seeps in to all of them. So that's just maybe part of my voice, at, at least in this book. And I have, you know, another book that I call the invisible book or the unpublished book, which is all the poems that didn't go into this. At one point, I had to really think what belongs here, what truly is in, um, is a part of what's being done in this book. And so a lot of other ones, like I, at one time, the book was all love poems about my husband. And <laughs> those are, there's none really in here anymore. Maybe one, although oh. I still love him very much. You just yeah. have to make these hard decisions. Yeah, yeah. Because, well, and at that time, when you still had all these other poems in it, um, did you know you were going to be entering it into this specific contest you were talking about? Um, no, but, you know, I sent it out to many different contests along the way. This is my tips for any poets, aspiring poets or practicing poets listening and each time I submitted it, it evolved and grew and was transformed into its final thing. And so I don't see any of those prior drafts or attempts at contests to be wasted in any way. They were so essential to the books kind of becoming and emerging into what it is. And at some point you just have to say, OK, that's enough. We're done. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of beauty to be said in that. It's just kind of like like anything in life. Your All of your experiences that you have are going to add to the final product. Mm-hmm. And everything, everything evolves you through your journey is kind of what I just gathered out of what you said. Yeah, absolutely. If I had known at age 17, like how all the many different threads of my life would come together in such a perfect way, you know, 20 years later... I would have been amazed because it seemed at the time so disjointed, like poetry and herbs and like whatever else I was into history. Like it didn't really seem like it would, you know, make a a nice cake, but it was a good recipe in the end, which I now know. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. How about another poem since I was talking about them? I would love another one. Yes. Which one are you going to do? I was thinking of crossing Elwood Pass. Let's do it. So this poem looks kind of directly at the loss of the conifers that are going on. Anyone who's traveled through the Rocky Mountains will have noticed that there's whole mountain ranges, mountainsides covered in dead trees. And it's it's really something to behold. And this is a poem that is about crossing one of those areas with my family in our Volkswagen bus. <laughs> All right, it's called Crossing Elwood Pass. We travel dirt roads that exhaust us with die-off. Every conifer between Platoro and South Fork, shaggy-limbed and gray, snags mapping the mountain's black lung. The girls murmur in the back seat, sketching tiny figures that they arrange into families with torn edges and lives narrated fluently in verbs. Hear how they bound, how they comfort, how they cry. We take oxygen for granted along the creek where we lay a blanket in bread 
and bruise the scent from yarrow with bare feet. We heard a child was lost that day in the San Juans and crossed Elwood Pass not knowing his fate. No sign of search crews, but that's just it. No sign, save 40 washboard miles of the forest beckoning its retreat. At Timberline, we crouch beneath dead trees to snip arnica blooms, the yellow sprawl of petals caught in long shafts of unhampered, unblocked light. I think, I mean, this one in itself has so many powerful messages already. I was following along mm, as you read good. it, too. I mean, the line where you even write, like, we take oxygen for granted along the creek. I think that's a really powerful message in itself because, mm. yeah, oxygen is in our earth. But, mm. it, I mean, it's it's true. Mm. So many people do. I mean, we, we do take it for granted on this earth. And, unfortunately, we're ruining yeah. our earth each day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a scientist, and I wish I was and could understand it all more, but it's impossible to not drive through a mountain range surrounded by dead trees and be like, uh, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen? Is this going to continue? And, you know, some research says that, oh, yes, it's going to continue. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, and I know, like, when you are in these places, you just you realize that you are such this like small, tiny human in this <laughs> amazing, amazing world. Mm-hmm. And there's so much out there. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And also when you say like, we heard a child was lost that day in the San Juans. I mean, that's like an experience you guys had. And that's, <laughs> I mean, an interesting, like scary experience. So scary. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so that's another thing with poetry is like, it's, it's sort of like the subconscious mind, like can bring these things together and we can't necessarily explain them, but we can only witness. And like that sense of the lost child is so necessary and important to me in this poem. And it's true. I mean, that's a true story. That's what happened. And all day I was like, when are we going to see them find the kid? And it was like part of a, like a boy scout troop or something that was backpacking and I'm sure they found this child. I mean, it was a, like a young teenager, actually, not a little kid. So maybe I was a little misleading. <laughs> but, um, you know, you need, like, we have that lost child. That fear kind of comes in. Well, yeah, and I just think it's really neat how even in this whole poem, just, like, looking at it, too, like, you do go from, like, the girls are murmuring in the back ske- seats, sketching mm-hmm. their figures, and then there we are talking about the oxygen, and then the last... <laughs> the last child. And then Mm. it's, yeah, this poem does take you on this whole, whole experience. And also there's this line at the end at Timberline, we crouch beneath dead trees to snip Arnica blooms, the yellow sprawl of petals caught in long shafts of unhampered, unblocked light. Now, Arnica is a very important medicine to us. I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with it, but it's something we gather and you take these flowers and you make an oil that's really wonderful for bruises and um, like muscle and injuries. And you can, you know, use it as an ointment. And it grows up really high in the mountains in places that are usually densely forested. So the flip side of this 
you know, kind of grisly, tragic scene of dead trees is that there's light enough for the Arnica to be blooming like intensely. So there would be these whole, you know, they weren't fields, but they were large stands of yellow flowers where normally you wouldn't be seeing but a few little blooms. So the beauty and the destruction, um, you know, or the, even the healing, the remedy and the death are all just juxtaposed in such a striking way. Yeah, yeah. No, I had not heard of Arnica. I don't know a lot about the plants <laughs> at all. It's something I really wish I knew more about, but <laughs> I do not. Very, very cool. Is there um, another poem that would be really mm. awesome to share? Oh, oh, yeah. The other thing that I thought was really cool was that a few of your poems mention Shabbat and like oh. the rest <laughs> and just like how the all of the seasons are changing and how Shabbat mm. is the day of rest. That mm. That really stood out to me. Nice. I hadn't really made that connection with, I mean, the rest. It's so obviously that's the whole point of Shabbat. Um, and the, you know, the relationship to the land of resting the land as well. So I turned to Refugia 7, but I actually am thinking I should read the poem that comes after it because it's called Fall Reckoning. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Since you already heard one Refugia poem. Um, Fall Reckoning. You say these glowing trees are a lantern to see November by. It's hanging strings and thin places held up to the light and exposed. We wrap ourselves in the afternoon's weave and cloak. It's tangled overgrowth, a catalog of the late season's ripeness. Dried berries on the stem like outstretched palms, so open and indifferent. We cross the threadbare mountain, wearing regret on our shoulders like tattered coats. The forest shivers, aspen leaves loosened until they glaze the dark path that led us here in gold. So we cross the threadbare mountain, wearing regret on our shoulders. There, are you, are you talking about not the, just the fact of, that the season's changing yeah, and that it's just, just good old fall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got it. You've got it. I, you know, speaking of Shabbat again, like I can't get through fall without like really thinking about, you know, Rosh Hashanah and like the season of reckoning and really looking at a variety of our actions and deeds, you know, on the collective scale, on the personal scale. Well, yeah, I mean, because that's like what it like during Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, that's kind of what it's all about. Like Yom Kippur mm -hmm. is all about forgiving mm -hmm. yourself of your sins from yeah. the past year. And right. Yeah. When I saw Shabbat in there, I was like, wow, it really like, yeah. And I mean, Shabbat is there because like God created the world in seven days. And then on the last day he rested. And that really stood out to me. Because I think you mentioned it in one year, there was a winter poem you had. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, no, I know exactly which one you're talking about. It is, our names unfurl across winter, part one. Under the bare branched tree, my father lights a hand-rolled smoke, jangles his cup of bones. Hush, I scold. 
Tomorrow ice will hinge the door. At last the fire will be lit, ash and black and warm. My firstborn wants to know Persephone's original name, wants to know which flowers grew in the field where she danced, why her mother spends winter in tears. Wind breaks against fence rails, the wood gone to splintered gray. Part two. Tomorrow, the geometry of the unseen, an actual field, will be up for discussion. Look closely at the fabric of our days, and you will see the careful seams of my needle. You will see my father, his long white hair, his white beard, pluck meteors from the desert's skin. Not metaphor, meteor. It is necessary to use the right name. Like a Shabbat that begins and ends at nightfall, the new year opens its hungry mouth just as the windows are drawn against darkness. Take me, winter morning, to feed the ghosts their bits and crumbs. Scatter bread. Let them rattle as they feast. The poem goes on, but I'll leave it there for your listeners to get their own copy. <laughs> yes. Find the end of that. Find the end of it on part four. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for poetry. Listening to you read this is giving me this whole new perspective. <laughs> yeah. It's good to hear it as well as read it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So do you ever like sit out side and do your poetry or do you have a specific mm -hmm. place you go when you're writing your poetry definitely my kitchen table with my pot of earl gray tea right there <laughs> is where it all happens but I do rely on the natural world in a variety of ways for my writing process one is that my walks daily walks are absolutely critical part of the process. And I'm not like out there with my notebook, like scribbling and, but I am out there like connecting, listening to the land. It's like, it all starts in listening and just being at home and aware and like having your senses open. And, you know, I feel like it's from that relationship that the poems arise, even if they're actually written at the kitchen table on my laptop it begins there. I think of them as a fruit of the land. And I try to reciprocate and return my poems to the land also. Like I'll take them out there along the way, like when they're in different various draft forms and I'll read them, you know, while I'm walking and get the rhythm of the footsteps and the breath and the landscape to kind of align. So that is just one of the ways in which I really and then I see the poems as a gift back. Like, thank you for this beauty. Thank you for these gifts of place and belonging. Here is my offering to the land. So that's kind of a Santa Fe thing, isn't it, to say? But it's true. I think it's my obligation. And whatever we can give back to the land that we love, we should. You know, oh, yeah, as long totally. as it's not littering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... I think the more that we give back to our land as humans, the more we're going to be able to save it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> or we definitely. can spread that message. Yeah, I think any kind of reciprocity with the landscape, with the natural world is 
one of our major tools that we have. Like if each one of us is acknowledging what we are given by the land by giving something back, whether it's making choices in how we live or anything else, boy, that would have a big impact, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A huge one. So what's it what's it like to live in? Is it Santa Fe that you mm-hmm. live in? I do. I live right in town. Um, it's beautiful. We're so lucky to live in Santa Fe. It's incredibly open. I have these big mountains just outside my window. They're covered in snow right now, and we've been skiing a lot this winter. And in the summers, those mountains are just this paradise of, you know, aspen groves and green grasses and winding trails and wilderness, like right out, right up there. Um, And I love those trails. I've walked them in all seasons for, you know, I've lived in Santa Fe for about 20 years now. And even though we travel and we go on bigger trips, like this is my place that I'm the happiest, just these familiar spots. It's warm and cold all at the same time. Like the sun comes out and just makes you feel so good. And the sky is so blue. It's like, you're like, can't you just be cloudy for once? Because I just want to stay in bed with my book and be cozy. But no, I have to go out because it's so nice. So out you go. Um, And Santa Fe is just lovely. And it's kind of nestled at the edge of the most incredible terrain. You know, we're close to Colorado and go over to Arizona a lot too. And um, all of those places are amazing for us to explore. I mean, to be able to have the mountains right outside your, your back door Mm -hmm. is a really awesome gift in itself. Yeah. It's a good quality of life. Yeah. So do you guys, um, you said you do skiing in the winter. Are there any major like summer recreation things you do? Well, we're already starting to think about our boat trips coming up. We do rafting, like long rafting trips, multi-day trips. And um, so we're gearing up for that and starting to think about, you know, where we're going to go and what that will be like. And that's a really wonderful thing because with our family, you know, it's a way of bringing our kids deep into the wilderness without a lot of complaining. (laughs) And they love it. And we love it. So that's a big part of our life too. When you say not complaining, have you like tried bringing them on, on long hikes and (laughs) is there constant complaints there? (laughs) Um, you know, I'm just going to be real and say, it's not always easy to, you know, get your kids out there. Um, in some ways, it was easier when they were little and we could just kind of give them M&Ms every, you know, few hundred feet or like tell a really good story. And they would just kind of go in like a trance up to the top of the mountain. We had those years and now they're stronger and they're capable and, you know, they just don't always think it's the funnest thing to do. But there's a lot of ways it can be more fun, like taking a dog, we borrow a dog and take them on the hike or go with friends. You know, I think groups are really fun for kids to be out with. They don't complain quite so much. So yeah, we haven't really tried to backpack with them yet, but that's coming. We'll do that when they're a little older. So this was sort of a intermediate uh, step, putting them in a boat and going down a river works well. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing we do is go out in our Volkswagen and we go on like long trips in that. And we've been going further and further. Last summer, a couple summers ago, we went to like Glacier and the 
Olympic Peninsula and you know, that's its own form of recreation, probably closer to like hiking or boating than to actual like road tripping in a modern car because we're so slow and so like uh, old and school. so in this Volkswagen, do you guys sleep in that too as a yeah. family? Yeah, it's like a camper with a pop top. There's enough room for, it's four of you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Enough comfortable room? Or is it? Well, it's cozy. Yeah, cozy. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it's comfortable. Awesome. Yeah. The van life, that's pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the fact that you drove it through Colorado and yeah, I always uh, see yeah. those those people in those. And I'm like, whoa, you guys are adventuring. Wow. So your book was published just this past September, correct? Yes, yes. And have you been able to share it a lot at local bookstores and read it a lot? Yeah, I've done some great readings, mostly just here in the region. And I'm, you know, going to travel a little farther afield um, in the coming months. But I'm a pretty low-key person, and I just say yes to the great opportunities that come, but I'm not out really pushing it because I'm a homebody. I'd rather be home writing and taking walks than you know, book touring around. Yeah. 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 So podcasts and all that are a great way to like meet people and connect and get the word out from my own house. Right. Right. Well, and when you have friends of friends telling things, I mean, that <laughs> the word spreads. <laughs> That's all you need. That's yeah. all you need are friends. Yeah. Oh yeah. I also wanted to touch on your, your blog. I mean, mm. Your old recipe for New World blog, that that in itself is almost like a, mm. it's poetry in a sense too. Ah, oh, thank you. Yeah, that blog is truly, I mean, I seldom write on it now. I kind of resurrected it when I was like, oh, I have a book coming out. I need to like get myself back out there in the world because I had slowed down on writing on it while I was actually writing the book, like writing the poems was such an internal process that I couldn't be creating things for like public consumption during that time, if that makes sense. But prior to that, and prior to really delving into poetry, I began this blog when my kids were really little. It was like the era of the blog, like 2008. (laughs) And, and so that's um, when you were writing no poetry at all. No, no. But I feel like I learned so much about writing and my voice through that process. And it was a lot of fun. I started it because we did this experiment. This I don't know how far back you went in the archives. But my husband, who was teaching at that time, he'd had this like, uh, I don't remember if it was like a political action project, but it was like, oh, it was personal action project was what it was called. And his students were required to do something kind of activist oriented and his act his action was to go plastic free for six months and of course for him to go plastic free meant our whole household did and so I started the blog to kind of document that journey and that's why the name is old recipe for a new world because my recipe was less waste and more joy and so that was kind of where I was writing from okay no I didn't go that far back but that's that's cool to hear where that came about yeah Yeah. (laughs) I think a lot of authors kind of find their find their niche through blogging yeah it is a really good space to get out there and practice your voice yeah I don't know how much of that's happening now like how who still has a blog I don't know but it was awesome for me it was really great and I 
met amazing people through it and you know, made a lot of connections in the world. So do you suggest that aspiring poets start a blog? <laughs> no, I suggest that they go to nursing school first. <laughs> That's my only advice. <laughs> Get a job, poets. <laughs> That's good advice. It's realistic advice, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, as long as you have passion to do it, I mean, that's, I mean, your passion is so true. And I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest part of it. It's, right. it's the passion of yours. And that's what, what keeps it going. Yeah, it is. Is there any other, any things we didn't touch on? Oh, we went all over the place. We just went wandering. Thank you for kind of coming into the the forest with me to talk about all this. And, um, you know, anyone who is interested in more should get the book and take a visit. It's a great way to visit New Mexico, a great way to just reflect and kind of contemplate your own Um, experience of the place where you live, the story of yourself in relation to it. And I hope that anyone who does finds inspiration and a point of connection. Awesome. Thank you. And where can people find more information about Refugia or just about you? You should come to my website, kaisbello.com. And my name is spelled K-Y-C-E-B-E-L-L-O. And the book is Refugia, R-E-F-U-G-I-A. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kais. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I really loved doing this interview with Kais because, as you guys could probably tell during the interview, I was like a little hesitant about poetry before this interview with her. I was, it kind of scared me in a way. I didn't know how to decipher poetry, but I really liked how she laid poetry out for people. It's, it's like a hike. It's your, you, it's your own experience when you're reading it. Everybody can experience it differently. Yeah. I liked how she said too, you don't necessarily have to understand like exactly what the author is trying to get to in poetry. It's just something that hopefully you can pick pieces out that resonate with you and those will have their own meaning for you and your experiences. And it's so true that in her book, Refugia, there's so many pieces that people who are so passionate about the outdoors can pull from her writing and resonate with, whether it be plants, global warming, the human relationships on the earth there is definitely something that you'll be able to resonate with. If you would like to learn more about Kais or purchase her book, Refugia, head on over to her website, kaisbello.com. We'll have a link to her website in the description of this episode. Maybe you'll just find something that resonates with you in this book, Refugia. We love sharing these stories with you through the Hiking Through Life podcast, and we're so grateful that you listen to this podcast. If you'd like to support the Hiking Through Life podcast further, we have these amazing new t-shirts and water bottles. The t-shirts come in four colors, and the water bottles are perfect for trails, adventuring, or daily use. Consider checking them out at hikingthroughlife.net slash shop.
Use the code PODCAST and receive 10% off your first order. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.